Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Uh, it's Roxanne Durhaj of the Authentic Connection Movement. Uh, thanks for joining us again this week. To, uh, today I have a special colleague, Sandeep Alja, and she's uh, an organizational psychology practitioner. Hi, Sandeep. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her background, and we're going to kind of talk a lot about uh, change strategy today. So she serves as an international HR and change strategist, and she's a keynote speaker and a trainer. She's the founder and CEO of Multi-Level Leadership Consulting, Inc., an organization that parts with, partners with leaders who want to make change easy for people across all levels of the organization. She has been in progressive uh, leadership positions for the past 17 years in HR, OD, or organizational development, consulting, and change management, both in the public and private sector organizations. She teaches undergrad, grad, and executive education courses in business and psychology at uh, various universities across Ontario. So we have, a, we have a couple of things in common there. Psychology, yes. uh, but I've also taught uh, university and grad school, but I haven't done that for quite a while. Well, do you miss it? You know what? I, I could say that some parts of it I miss and some parts yeah. I don't. You know, um, sometimes the structure, um, the 15 weeks or stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, it's sometimes nice to be able to go in like when you, you know, train for a half day, full day and you're fit. Right. Uh, so I think there's, there's pros and cons for you. What about you? What do, what do you prefer doing uh, just a one-off or do you like teaching um, at the academic level? I do love teaching at the academic level. It's just working with students, their fresh ideas, and they're very critical observers of asking the basic questions that we've almost kind of taken for granted. So I love that perspective. And usually I don't teach more than one course a year. Um, actually, that's not true. It's one a semester. Sometimes it's about three maximum per year. Yeah, okay. so it's not too bad in terms of work balance. So do you teach in Toronto or do you have to travel when you teach? Usually I travel. Most of the time I'm teaching out West. So Wilfrid Laurier, Waterloo, Guelph, Brock, Ryerson, and oh, De Groot. Okay, nice, yeah. nice, nice. Yeah. So today, obviously, um, you know, changes, obviously we knew, we know that's the constant, right? I think of uh, when I was consulting, um, you know, I think I shared this to you almost like, at any given point across my portfolio as a, an executive consultant in health and wellness, about 78 to 85% of my portfolio was in flux. Mm -hmm. uh, so people are, obviously it happens, but yeah. you know, unless it happens to us, we kind of think, oh yeah, change is happening, but how often is it happening? And what I realized is that really, you know, change became the norm that was happening out there um, across industry. So now you being um, obviously a subject matter expert on change, how often are things staying constant in organizations today? <laughs> well, I actually, because it's my work, I get invited when change is really at peak or for my really proactive clients when they're just getting started on planning because uh, that's where I can add the greatest value before change has started or been introduced to the organization. 
But I would say change is happening all the time. Even if things are constant, there are things you're doing to make sure that that status quo is maintained. But I don't know a single organization that, uh, that is investing effort into maintaining status quo. People want to be better. Organizations want to have higher performance, more productivity, higher customer satisfaction. No matter how you parse more wellness uh, for their employees and more authenticity in their leaders, no matter what goal you have, you got to do something to create that change. And it can be at a small scale or a large scale. So the effort and the systematic approach that you use for that change can make all the difference in making sure that there's ease and acceptance in the new way of how you want the organization to work. So I would say that being a small company to a you know, multinational, most people kind of recognize when they're going through changes, some mm-hmm. of the sick things they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Would you say that most people are pretty strategic, like you're saying, like, let's say if someone's expanding or they're downsizing, right-sizing, they're talking strategy prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're calling you in. But I know when I worked as an executive, oftentimes that w- it was on the other end of it. Right. Like we're, you know, we're shutting down three locations. We're cutting this level. And by the way, we need... Um, services in that day within 24 to 72 hours to talk about the impact, right? Like to deal with the right sizing, to tell people about the impact of um, how it's going to affect them, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, you're not crazy, (laughs) you know, those types of things. And uh, then we'll kind of discuss what kind of things. And obviously there's outsourcing and stuff that goes Mm -hmm. with that. Uh, so that's when kind of you're you're just dumping right into the eye of the storm, yeah. right? And I think Roxanne, that's still happening all the time. Two things that have uh, shifted for me: I primarily work with large clients. I don't, I don't think I have any small clients. So with large organizations and significant projects that they're launching, there is a lot of raised awareness now about the proactive planning piece and all the difference it can make in getting people involved from the very beginning. So gone are the days where I'm just going to tell you what you need to do or, hey, we're launching a new system and get on board. Change starts the moment you make that announcement. And I think I have been very blessed with the type of clients I work with who are very proactive and thoughtful in that approach. But I think it's also because their large organizations have matured in terms of learn from some hard, rough edges of trying to launch something, which is for a multinational organization, you need that level of planning and strategizing. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to see, you can't wing it. It's, it's not that easy. Having said that, once I'm working with a client, there are countless other changes I hear about that nobody has put any thought to. Because one of the questions I often ask, is this the only change? Which I, I know the answer is no. But it's helping clients think through what are the other changes that I have introduced or will be introducing that either directly align with what I'm about to introduce or conflicting with what I'm going to ask the people to do. And that is where my role comes in in helping them think through all the changes from an employee's experience about when a VP is calling you in, he or she may have only, let's say, three or four projects. But when you think about across five or six VPs, an employee at the front line is going to end up experiencing 15 changes. And that cumulative experience is not usually thought out. And if you can get called at the very beginning, you can be much more proactive in figuring out what that approach should be so that people can come on board and not feel overwhelmed by the whole thing. It's already a, a really 
macro aerial shot of what it's going to look like, say mm -hmm. east and west coast, um, like you said, you could have five to seven VPs with multiple projects right. to go, and then the various levels with on, within every kind of environment that they're in, and then how that translates to the front-foot facing customer. That's a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things, we actually have tools that you can use. So there is a simple heat mapping exercise you would do based on what the changes are, who are the employees that will be impacted, and what type of impact will they experience? Is it a different behavior that we want them to do, a new technology, a new process? And then when you map it out, the darker the red, which means more compounded, more complex, and multi-tier changes that an employee or a group of employees will be experiencing, that helps you actually make prioritization decisions about where should you invest energy and how best to, that's where the strategy comes in. Absolutely. Because if you think about it, right, like, I mean, if it's, if it's a certain level of your, of your organization or if it's every level, yes. and it could be, it could be how you can, you know, communicate it. And I often say that I would see with the different organizations with changes that the, one of the biggest culprits that I would see is that people would know how to deliver messages mm -hmm. in, in, in the appropriate um, style and the amount that they should be sharing at the time or prior to, right? It's like you get nothing. I remember I went through a major change. I went through with one organ. I went through four changes. Wow. And um, some, you know, some of them were very fluid and you could tell, yes, it's, this is positive. Yes. There's going to be different things happening. There are different expectations and other ones. It was just boom, it's done. Right. And mm -hmm. then mass you're so right on the money about the communication piece. Mm -hmm. I often say that it's sometimes I always say communicate, communicate, communicate. So tell me what you think about that. Cause I know obviously, you know, um, with my background and, and the kind of work that I do, I'm always talking to people about really, you don't know someone's internal space, mm -hmm. um, we, you know, and from a, you know, a business perspective, tactical has to be talked about process has to be talked about, you know, all the, all the pieces that have to be placed so the business can run, but the individual is peace for the employee or the, or the employee could be a manager. They could be a VP or they could be the CEO. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But that space within that individual becomes really important for them to be able to share, not overshare, like, you know, mm -hmm. um, but to share in an appropriate way so that they could get what they need to be able to maneuver the change well. I think you are hitting the most important point that was a lesson I learned uh, through many trials and tribulations. I used to undervalue communications uh, when I just started off my career. Didn't think it was that important. I, the narrative has completely flipped. The most important thing in successful change management is communication. And no, you cannot ever under communicate, no matter how much you're communicating. But what you can do as an organization is be strategic about what is the best medium, frequency, and format of communication. So from a VP perspective, it's having that systematic rollout of as a sponsor, people still need to hear from me about why are we embarking this change? What is the case? And usually it's wonderful when we're aspiring for competitive advantage or something external in the environment that requires us to change, but also looking at the internal factors. What happens if we don't change? Where does that leave us? So it's almost addressing and building a case because we're all professionals and grown up in organizations. People want rationalization for why are you asking me to do something differently? And it's not acceptable and not respectful when the organization uses the approach of because we said so, or I don't have time, use your common sense to figure out why we need to do this. It really has to be spelled out 
And that spelling out has to be done in an empathic, compassionate, and at the same time, rational way so that at least a critical mass can make sense and say, you know what, that makes sense. We do need to do something different. So it's the caring piece that starts. But when you go down the hierarchical chain within an organization, it's the immediate managers that are responsible for that personal space conversations. Mm -hmm. My manager knows me well enough or I know my staff well. And it's in that space we can have sense-making conversations about what does this change mean for our team? What does it mean for our future roles? What does it mean for the projects that people are working on? Are they going to be part now? Or do we need to redirect resources? Or is this on top of everything we're doing? And what does that mean for my status and my contribution? These are very personal questions and communication that an organization can't have with employees directly. It can only happen through line managers. So at different levels, there's different type of communication. And it's great if a VP is super resourceful and believes in leadership by walking, you know, uh, the halls of their manual building. But uh, the reality is for multinational organizations, it's not feasible for somebody at the top, a CEO or a VP, or even sometimes directors to really be able to connect personally with individuals. So there's a lot of academic research that is talking about frontline managers or supervisors being the linchpin of successful change management because they're the only ones that can help employees make sense and meaning out of the change. So communication is critical. If I don't care, you can't make me do something different. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So, or you can try. <laughs> well, you can try. But you know what I hear as being something that I, I, I'd be interested in, in hearing more about is, so then you said the frontline kind of middle managers or people with direct reports mm -hmm. that are involved with day-to-day -day functioning are the key, the pivotal kind of driver of change. So the, obviously the senior um, executive team up to the CEO sets strategy, they also have to have buy-in, but they have to be able to deliver or connect from one level to another mm -hmm. to, to, to create that vision and buy-in for the people that are going to be delivering it. Sometimes, not all the time, I'm sure you have to, some of those people that are very senior oftentimes yeah. are not so good at communicating because they're so tactically left brain based. Yeah. Can you talk more about that and how you assist with organizations to help them when, when that might happen. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, I'll start by your comment about this differential that you've noticed. It is quite common. I also think the other part that really contributes to this gap in communication between the VP and the director or the director and the manager, there is this expectation that is not verbalized normally. How many times do I land in organizations that say only if our directors were highly competent, only if our managers were highly competent, we would be able to deliver but performance management requires the number one tenet is, are you clarifying expectations? Do your directors know what they have to do when you announce the change? Have they been part of developing the strategy? Buy-in doesn't happen by reading about it or hearing about it. Buy-in happens when I'm engaged and you've brought me along for the journey. Um, I think it is um, William Bridges, who, is, uh, who was a business consultant, and the idea is that no matter what change you're talking about, it could be process or a project or technology, any external, it doesn't matter. It's the internal change that any person goes through, which, which is consistent as an experience. 
if we can help people understand what that journey means and how to actually take initiative and get through that, then we would have enabled them to work through change. So in some cases, my support is with VPs is depending on when they brought me on board would be to actually bring the group together to understand what have they shared with the director group? What are their opinions? Sometimes I do that through an anonymous survey so that I can take that feedback back to the senior leadership team and show what do they know that we have not considered and how do they feel about the changes? So there's a lot of insight that gets generated because so much is taken for granted as compared to what actually is happening. So my engagement, usually the first part is around a discovery process. So that involves one-on-one meetings with the VPs and then either survey or depending on the number of people they have, some focus groups with their key leaders uh, through middle management. And then I organize that data to provide insights as con- and contrast that to what I've heard from the senior leadership team. And from that, I also look, and my this is my unique piece in which I make sure I'm bringing the influencers along. And it doesn't matter if they don't have positions of power, let's say a director title or a manager title, but it could be a frontline consultant or a nurse who is extremely influential, very well liked and respected. And everybody knows if I ask 10 people in the organization, tell me who the five movers and shakers are and the same names start, you know, boiling up. I know, I know that these people have influence. So my job is also to get that group together so that they become advisors to figuring out what the strategy needs to be. Well, that's so important, right? Because if you, you have people that sometimes are so powerful in an organization, but they may not have the title, but they're well-respected. They're a role model. They're a mentor. They've maybe been there or maybe they haven't been there that long, but they really um, have made an impression with others. And they're, I, I call them a leader, right? They may not have yeah. the formal title, but right. they need people just by their actions. And, and what a smart thing be, to be able to know who those people are. Let me ask an, uh, another side to that, because with corporate culture, when you're going in, um, I'm going to see with some of your ongoing clients, you know the culture. But if it's a new client, let's mm-hmm. say the culture has not been the most positive, mm-hmm. and, and then they're going through change. How do you approach that? So my first question to you would be, who has told me that the culture is not positive? And if it's the senior leader saying, you know what, it's been a rough patch, I feel we have a toxic culture, or people are not performing well, nobody cares. Depending on who has built that narrative, my first work is almost as a coach with them to explore if those assumptions are true, okay, and what, has, what experiences have led them to those assumptions. And based on that, I may also ask their peers, like my work is a lot of one-on-one with the senior leadership team. So there's usually some inconsistency in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And once we can figure out what that is, and let's say we establish definitely this is a culture where there's a commonly recognized problem or set of problems, Uh, depending on what that challenge is, if it's truly broken, extremely dysfunctional, Roxanne, I would say on two occasions, I've asked them to park the change. Mm-hmm. There is some healing and some conversations that need to happen, not even to rebuild trust, but just to, but if it's truly dysfunctional, the healing has to happen before change can happen. So you, you recognize that because that, that's the thing. It's almost like you're building a house and it's, 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 uh, it's built on quicksand if there's been massive problems. So you, you mm-hmm. will work with them to look at it for what it is and to say, maybe this change is, it's not a, a, the best time for now, just to mm-hmm. kind of 
give some time, whether it's like you said, for healing or just mm-hmm. connections, those types of things. And, and I would assume that most people that are looking at the entire landscape would say, Oh yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yes. And at the same time, there is, oh, no, that doesn't mean we can go forward. We have to do this. Um, But because my area of expertise is also HR, I usually look at multiple sources of data to help identify where would be the best way to invest energy. So that's where you start looking at positive deviance. So if you have 10 departments, and yes, overall, the culture is pretty toxic or complacent, but there's this one department that continues to outperform others, you start there. So that you can start building, you know, the positive momentum through small wins. So if there is absolute need that we cannot wait and healing has to happen concurrently, then the intention is usually set on, let's be strategic about where we invest and who we bring to the forefront as an owner of that change. Because there may be other people who are respected. Maybe you have a lot of history with field changes not necessarily because of your own doing, just circumstantially. It's also positioning and pairing to make sure that there is more acceptance and willingness from people. So now when I was uh, doing health and wellness consultants, you know, consultancy, we would look at all the metrics. We would look at incidental absences. We would look at short-term claims, long-term claims. We would look at arbitrations. It was union and stuff like that. And in reference to change management, um, what kind of metrics do you look at in reference to the impact on the employees and the kind of the markers you're trying to kind of hit mm-hmm. to effectively maneuver change? Are there certain things you look at? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say independent of the change, a few basic things that I am interested in and ask for is um, basic demographics, their engagement survey, if they have done one, if they haven't done a comprehensive engagement survey, that does raise some alarms about we do need to hear from people. How are they doing? Like if we don't have a baseline to start from, that really becomes a source of recommendation that we're starting. That's not strategy. That I can't, we can be strategic if we don't know differentially how your organization's doing. So, but if they do have employee engagement data, that becomes really, really helpful. Um, I also ask them for any, Uh, performance or uh, program evaluation reports that they may have done around major launches that they've done in the past year. Um, What else I may ask? It also depends on what type of change we're talking about and which group. Uh, If they do collect any other data, I do actually ask them if there's anything that you think I should be aware of that may provide me additional insights in preparing. Um, It's not so much data, but I always, always look to the strategic plan because we want to make sure that the change that they're introducing is directly going to advance your strategy. So those are some sources that consistently get used. So tell me, tell me about a strategy that you've seen that's not gone so well and one that you, and ones that you think these are some of the key things that made them successful. A strategy that I created that did not go well. I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, <laughs> See, great. I would say before we even jump into this, one of the first things that we work together as the senior leadership team, including the project managers working on the change, is something called a case for change. And the most important question I would encourage project managers and one that coaches and consultants ask senior leaders is, how will you define change? Success. And for some people, it means that going back to technology, it's an easier one. Technology got implemented. Is that good enough? 
Or is it that people are consistently now using new technology? Or that your outcome metric, which is that the errors have gone down or people have more time, you know, going back to healthcare because I do a lot of work in healthcare, that now uh, doctors and um, allied health professionals are now able to spend more time on bedside. So it really depends on how they define. I don't force it on them. I do educate what success can look like. And sometimes it's good enough that it got implemented, depending on the circumstances and what the change is all about. Um, an example that is coming to my mind right now is a project I did in South Africa. And it was a merger between two, it was, well, they called it a merger, but it was really an acquisition uh, by the larger organization of this private uh, company, Up and Comer. Um, and I was involved at the very beginning, so that was fantastic. But when we did the planning and developed the strategy, one of the contingencies, because they were so geographically spread, was to make sure that there are implementation managers to roll out somebody who was going to make sure that the activities that we have recommended actually get done. Um, and it wasn't physically possible for me. I don't always do implementation. I support it. Um, sometimes as a coaching call once a month, but they didn't opt for any of that. They decided they will take this forward. I later, when I met with the client who had hired me, he informed me how things had gone south because it just was too geographically spread to manage and they didn't want to put resources. When you don't dedicate resource to a change, people see that it's not important enough. Mm. And they see that as a symbol that this may be just a fad or a seasonal thing. It will pass. It did not serve the client well at all. And what could be have done differently in that situation? I think it was my first organization where it was so geographically spread. I did caution it, but I think I could have done more. Perhaps if I had other examples in my life where I had experienced uh, negatively how important implementation support is when you have a multinational. Mm -hmm. It makes such a big difference. I think I would be much more vigilant and um, persuasive in making sure there's implementation support. Yeah, and I mean that consistent message and supports, and you know, if if they're you know five hours away in between, and and I mean you don't have to support um, hands on deck at the one location versus another, mm -hmm. and if they're not consistently having that same messaging or support, it's tough, right? It it is really tough. So like to to your point, you don't you have to th sometimes think if it's east to west coast, some places are very remote, right? right? And, you know, versus places like us with the GTA, it's no big deal. Right. If, uh, you have, you know, West End, East End, all those things. If you have, say, a, a, a hospital that has locations, uh, which I managed before, there'd be a couple, no big deal, you know, pretty mm -hmm. easy to get together. But if it's kind of like a remote location and all the rest is kind of separate, I've, I've been involved once with a, a kind of a merger acquisition to um, what is now Meridian Credit Union years ago. And it was HEPCO in Toronto. And um, uh, it was Niagara mm -hmm. Credit Union at that time. So they were considered the North mm. and South. And the cultures were so drastically different that there yeah. was almost like um, dissension between both. Yeah. Right. So I, we were involved in strategies of trying to kind of you know, discuss the change, talk about it, but there was still this illusion because this was the these were the Torontonians and these yeah. were the people from Niagara that yeah. somehow they were better because they were you know they were closer to the you know, the right. business sector those types of things. But you could kind of see how yeah. you know, like you said, like um, I often say, it's like 
when you're telling a story, right? And you're now shifting the story of the narrative. Mm-hmm. You have to tell, tell a beginning, a middle, and an end. Absolutely. Right? Um, and if you don't do it well, you know, then you kind of have bits and bites. And then people yeah. start to react viscerally to, you know, changes because they don't know how it's going to impact them. So let's talk a little bit about some of the internal on, on the, on this soft end or the psychological or the people end with stress and um, change. And Mm -hmm. what what kind of things do you generally are, are implemented for successful change around the stressors other than communication? Um, uh, The person I was talking about before, William Bridges, his model is so basic. Like every change consultant knows it. Most people who've gone through change know it. But I really do feel that this is the foundation of the change journey. And every time, even when it's desired change, personal change, mm-hmm. um, getting married, something you're so excited, marrying the love of your life, but now uh, you have to share space. You have to figure out schedules together. Can you travel You know, uh, both at the same time? Like Any happy change also brings so much checking you out of autopilot. And that requires patience and compassion for yourself and the other. And now if you think about the complete opposite where change was not planned, you were not expecting that your organization is going to be bought by another organization or that you're going to end up having uh, a new boss that you were not expecting. Those are things that hit you even harder because you're not anticipating them. Mm -hmm. And there is a bit of a trust breach sometimes where you have a contract, a psychological contract with the organization and you feel I thought I was always going to be working for you in this format, doing this job, but that mindset doesn't serve us well. And I think the best thing we can do, doesn't matter which industry we work in, is to truly sit with the idea that change is constant, which means as much as I don't want change, things may be going super great. The fact that there is nothing permanent so am I open? It's not to live in fear. <laughs> I coach clients and they're like, um, so I should keep expecting for the next you know, uh, shoe to drop. Like, no, that's not the idea. The idea is that if and when unplanned change comes your way, it's to remember that it's normal. I will get through it. Every individual, I would say, if you were above 20, you have gone through enough life experiences and changes that you weren't expecting, didn't want, and you did okay. Mm-hmm. You made through that, you're going to make through the future. So, and from an organizational perspective, it's wonderful how many organizations invest in leadership training for building change capability. Usually for leaders, I would invite, do it more. Mm-hmm. Extend that training to people. Help them understand what does it mean to work through change and the process of letting go of how things are right now. What does it mean to be truly conscious and still not burdened by a new way of learning how to do things differently. And becoming comfortable in an environment where I may now feel like a beginner and not the expert that I am. So there's so much psychological turmoil of going through unplanned change. Organizations can really support their employees if they have invested before unplanned change happens to help them work through, build their skills, so that when you introduce the change, they're better equipped. And I think employees can also take that responsibility in learning for themselves and reflecting. And there are so many sources, books, blogs, uh, videos out there. There is no shortage of resources. Is there, so this, uh, what, what is his name? What Bridges? William. 
William. Okay. So and the book is called transition management, transition management. Okay. So that's a good one for people to consider. Absolutely. So really what you're saying, it's, 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 it's almost like, look, let's accept that change happens. What does it mean for me? Like, how do I respond? What's my personality type? <laughs> how do I respond? I, either the change is happening to me, or if I'm making the change, I probably feel more comfortable. Yes. I kind of put my ducks in a row. But if it's coming at me, it's almost like, I often say it's like being sideswiped on the 401, right? <laughs> you're kind of, you're trying to, you know, adjust to the change. Yeah. But so I think getting comfortable with that concept of saying, I don't like this. This is not good. Um, I'm going to miss, you know, working with you or seeing you in my, our 11 o'clock meeting or, you know, us having our monthly get togethers as a team. I think that's mm -hmm. the part that oftentimes when we would do the debriefings with the change management, when I was in consulting, that's what would happen to people. They would, they would talk about um, really, and it's, it's, it's in a way it's celebration, right? Because they're, they're talking about all the things that they really, really enjoyed and it's oftentimes not about per se the job, mm -hmm. but it's about the connection. It is. It right? is. And I would say two things I would add to that, Roxanne. So many people change usually decide not to voice it out to the person who can actually do something about it. And they decide to vent or get unhappy about it. The ultimate single thing you can do for yourself, for your well-being, is to take initiative. If you're unhappy with the change, Let's have a conversation. I am sure somebody who is up top will appreciate a new perspective about maybe you see something from a frontline perspective that they have not even considered. So you would be adding value. So take initiative, whether you're happy. And if you're happy with the change, especially if you're a manager who is the one or a leader who's introducing the change, <clears throat> practice compassion. <laughs> you have probably thought about this change for weeks, if not months. And the moment you announce it, you want people to come on board they need to digest that information. They need to make it their own. So that requires time. And it's almost the marathon, it's called the marathon effect. The idea that a leader is so far on their vision for change, but when they announce it, they want people to meet them there at the finish line. When there are people in the marathon that haven't even started. They so haven't, keeping that perspective. Gotten, yeah, they haven't even gotten out the gates. And, no. Uh, and the, the, and the CEO is about to get past like, <laughs> yes. a quarter mile. It's not so true. Yeah, it's a, that's yeah. a good perspective. So really, it's, uh, it's compassion, too, for each other, right? Because oftentimes, it's kind of like I say, you know, my perception. And I've been there. So I, I, I can, you know, um, you know, remember being, oh, my goodness, not another change. And yeah. it, was, it was because it wasn't being communicated. And I always said, when I was a manager and there was change, I would communicate when, even when I knew nothing. I would yeah. say, so here's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> what we knew last month, and I worked for a hospital out here for about eight years, and there was always change. This is before yeah. the lens came in, right? Wow. Uh, I worked for the Niagara Health System for years, and uh, people were always complaining, and, and change was coming. And then, you know, and then of course the lens happened. So you can imagine what that swirl was. Right. And uh, but but people were always they, people just need to know. Yeah, there's nothing coming. Yeah. There is something coming or we really don't know, but how will we, don't, how will we talk about not knowing? Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be as, a, as a, a manager at that point where I ran a unit, that's, that seemed to keep people going, even though they were, people were often scared about what's, what does this mean for me? Right. And also that develops trust. I can trust that Roxanne will tell me if there was a news, she will keep me apprised. And that gives me comfort in knowing that there is nothing unplanned. Um, that you will give me some time. And if it's unplanned and you are like, I didn't know about it, there is now trust currency 
-hmm. that people will be like, okay, so what do we do? Here's the situation. How do we work through it? But if there is a pattern of a leader never communicating and people finding out through different grapevine or a different source, it, you've lost the opportunity to build trust. And I understand how many times I've been in situations where it's all hush-hush. You cannot talk about it. And that's part of the strategy devising as well about what is the right time of sharing? Because mm -hmm. sharing too soon before things have been finalized and then disappointing people or how much information needs to go out. But more often than not, you should start early you sh as soon as you can, as much as you can uh, and in different formats. And intuitively, I think as an, being an employee and also being a manager that had more information, you knew there were certain things you could share. Yeah. And if I shared too much, it would be destructive. So it's, it's right. I, I think we're going back again to um, communication and trust, right? Yeah. So I would say, and I, I don't know if you would concur with this, that um, the capacity or the um, skill set <clears throat> of managers become, in, become very, very vital Yes. Um, obviously prior to change, but even more so as you go through change. change, right? Yes. Because if they're stressed and they're not effectively dealing with what's happening because they're worried about what's going to happen to them and they're not able to kind of collate within themselves what they need to do to be able to, to kind of feel okay with the change. And then they have to report to others. That makes it a little bit difficult also. Absolutely. And which manager is not stressed? <laughs> I mean, healthcare is notorious for the span of control that the managers have. How do you have a personal relationship with 100 nurses? Is that even, that's not humanly possible. So the stress is as much a given as change for these managers. What organizations can do above and beyond is really invest in supporting these managers. It is building relationships between the directors and managers. It's providing coaching. It's providing and knowing what their story and their goals are. Like mm -hmm. as a director, if you have 10 or 15 managers, hopefully not more than that, reporting to you, do you understand what their individual goals are? Do they need external coaches? Do they need specific skills or resources? That transparency, the expectations we have of managers are the same expectations we need to have of senior leaders and how they treat their direct reports. I think so. And I think it, 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 is, it is really a tiered effect, right? It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, does the CEO have his vision and, and, and kind of clearly in place? Is he connected to his senior team? Mm -hmm. How is he able to kind of relate to them? And I've, I've heard, you know, um, of so many times where people are afraid to share yeah. truly what's going on with the CEO, except the, you know, so the CEO is relying on the senior team to really yes. tell him what it is, but they're thinking, well, uh, maybe I'll be perceived as, you know, not being able to handle it or mm -hmm. uh, those types of things. And then things don't get up to the CEO and it gets trickled down in a way that's maybe incongruent right. um, from their level to the middle managers, to the front line, you know. So hopefully the senior mostly Leader, the CEO is actually using multiple sources of input, not just the senior leadership team. He or she is walking the hallways and actually takes time or create avenues for people to speak out. Um, two things that have worked really successfully for me uh, in change management support for senior leadership. Number one, I used, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Slido. There's a, well, there are multiple open forums where people can anonymously uh, ask questions, provide feedback. So with any major strategizing session, I actually asked the CEO to host those forums. So it's like a town hall, but people can ask questions online and then others in the audience can upvote or downvote. 
So you're using that time to have a very real conversation. Anonymity also gives people courage. Sometimes you have to draw the boundaries of what respectful courage looks like. Um, but more often than not, both CEO and employees have awe about how real and authentic the conversation was. Mm-hmm. And that is what builds trust and change. And that goes such a long way. The second thing I would say from a change management perspective is the dashboards we create to actually evaluate whatever, however they've defined success so that you're not just waiting till the end. You're getting trickling reports up to see is the plan going according to how we had structured it. So I believe a CEO should be using multiple sources of input Mm -hmm. to make sure that he or she is informed about what's happening. Same goes for the rest of the senior leadership team. Yeah, multiple levels of information. And um, you never know where you get your, the most valid information sometimes. Right, right. You know, I often used to say when I um, would, you know, go into my company's quarterly, I could tell the pulse. Let's say I was getting a new account by sitting in the reception area by the receptionist. And you know what, Sandeep, generally, I was not incorrect. Because no. you could tell, right? You could tell if the person had a really nice, you know, and some people are very good at frontline, but yeah. some people you could kind of tell, you feel that almost a disconnection or a bit of, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then oftentimes when you kind of get in and then of course we're rolling out psychological services yeah. and those types of things. And we're talking from all the way up to the senior team, all the way down to the front line. Right. That was very interesting because then you would hear the perspectives um, you know, and then you're like, wow, it's interesting. Cause then you could kind of see, okay, well, the, you're hearing this front line, you're hearing this from the middle management, you're hearing this from the upper mm-hmm. management, but there's, well, that doesn't make sense. If this yeah. is happening here, how, how come that's not happening there? So it's, uh, but I would all, often be able to tell just by sitting in the reception. And then sometimes I'm new, right? So they have no idea who I am. Right. That would give me even more because it didn't have to be any way. <laughs> yes. You know, so my other side of uh, business is around HR strategy. And when an organization engages me, usually the first part of the engagement is doing an audit. And that does involve me spending time there observing and then matching it against the data and the narrative I've heard. And right. there's such insight. If there's congruence, if it's good, good for us. If there's congruence, but it's negative, it really gives you the questions you should be asking to critically appraise the situation. So right. it's amazing how much you can gather and learn by just being present, Yes, which is one of the harder pieces with international work because so much of it is virtual and there's a lot of posturing when, and we want to use our time well. Um, I think once people are in long-term contracts, over time, it's hard to posture. Mm-hmm. for too long. You can't keep pretending the authentic self does come out. So, but it's still, if it's a short-term contract, it becomes a bit of a challenge relying on the virtual piece. It's harder. You know, I, like I say, any of us can perform for any period of time, but I, like you said, year of multi-level contracts, like yes. I mean, oftentimes I would deal with, I mean, I would have contacts for 10 years. So guess what? Yeah. We got to know each other real really well. well. <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, and then obviously you get to know each other others lives and kind of you know mm-hmm. what was going on and not just the company's lives you get to know them and that's that's oftentimes very very important so this has been lovely and yeah, i enjoyed it um, yes so you know 
obviously you speak, you train, you do HR uh, consulting. I know you do uh, keynoting your business. I think you said was around 50, 50. Mm-hmm. So for anybody that's um, wanting to reach out to you um, that are interested in either you speaking or doing a strategy for something, I'm sure people are, that are listening are thinking, Oh, this young lady can help me do with certain things. Where could they reach you and um, uh, connect with you to, to either get a, a, an initial call or, maybe a strategy meeting with you? Just email me or LinkedIn. Just send me a message there. I would be absolutely delighted to make that connection and would love to actually meet your audience personally. Awesome. awesome. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put your, the link uh, for your website um, along with LinkedIn. And if anybody's wanting to connect with you, they can do that. So again, my pleasure. So for everyone listening, what, what are we learning? We learned that at the end of the day, um, you know, as individuals, we come to companies and changes the, changes the constant. So if we can really connect and think about um, if we don't know what the change is going to look like, talk about it. Um, there's no right or wrong way to do change. Um, if you're a senior leader, once you figure it out, it's your responsibility to really kind of put the specific things in place, uh, like Sandeep is saying, to, to create that positive, healthy change. And no reaction is a, is a wrong reaction other than we're, we're all very, very different. And to appreciate those differences. And at the end, at the end of the day, we all just want to go to work and, and, and have productive lives. Um, you know, and we spend so much time at work. Why not uh, in creating change, try to do that the best way possible. So again, Sandeep, thanks so much. And for everyone, I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Okay, Roxanne, take care. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sandeep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.